Hey everybody, Q&A time. I'm sitting with my good friend, Dr. Chris Spearman, and he decided that he wants to riddle me with some questions with respect to training. So you guys don't always get a lot of perspective from me anymore anyways on the ins and outs of training. And I don't know if I've ever done a training podcast per se. Like I talk a lot about training intermittently on the Q&As, but it's never specifically directed. Uh, For those of you guys that don't know Dr. Chris Spearman, he is now the CEO of Fitness Coach Freedom. So he's helping fitness coaches all around the world create a life of freedom and ultimately scale your business online. And he's doing a really, really good job. We spent a couple of weeks here in Columbia, masterminding, optimizing growth strategies and understanding really how building an online business goes. And Chris and I have done some really, really fun collaborations and lots coming for you guys in the future. But we said we're going to sit down this evening and have a little chat about training. So obviously my training in the last four years has changed a lot. So we can certainly talk about what it looked like during my peak, what it looked like during the ascension, what it looked like on the peak, and then now what it looks like kind of in the new mountain that I'm transcending, right? And it's all very, very different points in life. I think each one can be valuable to some person out there at a different point in their journey, right? There's many people out there who are ascending and they're like, I want to get bigger and I want to grow and I want to, I want to dominate. And there's people who are possibly at the top of the mountain. You know, I'm as good as I want to be and I want to maintain this. And then there's the people who are going, well, now I realize my own mortality is a thing and I want to just be healthy, vibrant, thrive and be strong, you know, strong and lean. So we could talk at any point in that journey that you decide. Yeah. Well, welcome, man. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Oh, thank you. I wouldn't have thought a few years ago that I'd be sitting in Colombia talking to you about training. Well, you do. So I was on Chris's mastermind group this week and he asked great questions. And I was like, wait, man, we should just, actually, you suggest that we sit down and do a podcast. But you do ask really, really great questions. Thank so you. very thoughtful. And obviously, you're a very intelligent guy. So I do appreciate it, man. Thank you, dude. Um, where to start? The questions that everyone wants to ask. Well, one of the questions that was brought up on the call on the weekend was what does your training look like right now? So a lot of people are probably wondering what your training looks like. How important is it now in your life, you know, with family, with business, with training? Like we always say we're trying to spin a million plates at one time. Mm-hmm. What's your training look like right now? So you will have noticed in the weeks we've been here, I'm getting weights at least every other day. And I've kind of got a commitment to doing that. And normally when I'm at home, that trades off with yoga every other day. So yoga can be a 60 to 90 minute practice in a yoga studio, or it can be a 30 to 40 minute, sometimes a little bit longer practice at home. And I really get submersed in yoga when I do it. It's the type of thing I could do it for two and a half hours. And I have you don't even notice because you're so inside your own head and inside your own body. And the benefits I see from that are innumerable and tremendous. But speaking about training, I try to do either a upper body, lower body split, or I do a push-pull legs split. So I'm getting the three-day rotation that goes in. So everything, you know, probably four days a week training pretty consistently, really with the objective of maintaining a high amount of strength and stability, right? So I'm not trying to get bigger. Like I'm still a large human and I still have some muscle to go. And I've talked about this a lot, you know, at nauseam really is I had originally had this intent to lose a bunch of muscle and I realized it's really not healthy for you to constantly be in a catabolic state with massive amounts of stress hormones and, and you know, trying to lose all that muscle. So I decided to do it over the span of five years. Really now it's like, okay, I actually feel good when I train. Like I feel strong. I feel mobile. My brain works better. So I don't want to neglect that. I don't want to be skinny and have no muscle. I think muscle has so much value. And the more I study it, you saw me tonight, you know, geeking out on myokines and how important that stuff is. 
But so it's really just getting in the gym and hitting the muscles from every angle, from every contractile length. And, you know, I may do per workout six exercises, maybe eight exercises, and I don't like to slow down. So when I'm training, I like to just go kind of bounce around from one body part to the next. And I don't like to stop. I don't like to talk. I like to just keep moving. And if I'm, if I'm am resting between sets, it's probably doing some type of yoga posing or some type of breathing. But really, objectively, getting that metabolic rate up a little bit by being a little bit more dense in the workouts, I wouldn't say I ever really go above 70 or 80% effort. Like it's not massive amounts of effort because what I see when I go above 70 or 80% effort is my weight shoots back up. So people have been coming to the gym from time to time and they'll come for a couple of weeks or a couple of months and all of a sudden my weight's 30 pounds heavier and I'm like, God, imagine. Yeah. Imagine. <laughs> well, I mean, I earned that for a long time, right? For sure. So I, compound exercises, just to kind of finish up, every workout will have one compound exercise. It'll either be squats or deadlifts and I just alternate back and forth. I do a lot of pull-ups. I do a lot of dumbbell work, just really trying to maintain joint function, joint integrity, and core stability. So I do a lot of core training. I do a lot of planking. I do a lot of working toward handstands. Yeah, it's a little more athletic, a little more dynamic. And as we spoke about this idea of like getting back to running at some point, which yeah. I do with my kids, uh, surprisingly often, my Achilles tendons hurt because both my calves are torn. So it's really short, the Achilles. So when I run, they hurt, but working on it. Just to put things into a little bit of perspective, like everyone, a fan of Ben's, reached out to Ben 18 months ago to help me with my training. And the truth is, and I say this to you as a friend now, I don't reach out to you because you were the best in the world at helping me build muscle. That was a massive bonus. I reached out to you because of the way you make me think about training. And I think anyone listening to this knows the value that you add in this space. It makes such a big difference, I think, for us as a tribe listening to your podcasts or following in your footsteps in terms of intelligent muscle building. But putting it into practice is actually a completely different skill set, something that admittedly I'm getting better at doing. What advice would you give to people out there who they watch what you do, they listen to the content you put out, they're really making a conscious effort to focus on intelligent muscle building and going through proper exercise execution, but it takes time. You have to be patient, right? So I can go off on that for a long time. And you asked the perfect question, actually. So one thing I didn't really touch on in my spiel as to how I train now is I'm very conscious of joint function and muscle function, right? Because if I'm going to live to be 120 and still be vibrant and athletic and feeling great, I need all of my muscles to work really, really well through their full range of motion, all my joints to work really well through their full range of motion. So that doesn't mean I need to lift 600 pounds above my head or you know do a 600 pound squat. What that means is I need to be able to create a fully lengthened muscle, create contraction in that position and ultimately move load through that range, right? It's muscle focus. It's muscle centric exercise. That's what I'm thinking about when I'm training first and foremost is like, am I taking this muscle from its fully lengthened position to its fully shortened? And even if you don't know what that actually is, just feel like think first, like what does it do and how do I take these two points further apart and closer together? That's really all I'm thinking about while I'm training. And I was like, how can I create massive stability at my trunk and spine and then propel motion through it with my limbs? Because that's how the human body moves. So the biggest thing that people miss in ultimately gathering the skill set necessary to build your greatest body is exactly that, is failing to realize that every single thing you do in the gym is a skill. So if you were to say, Ben, I've never played basketball before, let's go play basketball. Well, we're not going to throw you in with LeBron James. We're not going to throw you in a game. You're going to go, okay, Chris, let's try dribbling with your right hand. Okay, Chris, now let's try it with your left hand. 
Now let's see if you can go back and forth and then progress through all of these subset of skills until they become unconscious. LeBron James doesn't think about dribbling the basketball. He just doesn't, right? It's part of his body now. And that's the point that I got to as a professional bodybuilder. I didn't have to think about contracting muscles anymore. I just did it. And that's when the exponential growth comes. And that's where people go wrong is some people can become mindless in their training as they get more experienced but it's not perfect execution. Like in order to optimize growth, it has to be perfect practice, not just repetitive practice. And people miss that gap. It's like everybody talks in this fitness industry about periodization and sets of reps and volume and load, but they're missing the most fundamental piece of it all is what does it look like? Because if it's not identical, if it's not standardized, how do you quantify it, right? So this is what's missing. So this is what everyone just needs to focus on. Like there has to be a phase of skill acquisition. And I know that sucks. I know it's not glamorous. I know nobody wants to hear it. Everybody wants to hear, man, well, what type of periodization should I have? The answer is it doesn't fucking matter unless you're all correct. So let's say you've developed the skill set. You're very competent at most skills. Well, now you can play a little bit. Now you can your form can be a little bit loose because your, your nervous system understands how to do it. You can always revert back to these skills you've acquired. But if you didn't go through that, every time you reinforce that bad habit, like anything in life, like getting up late, like hitting the snooze button, like not doing the workouts. All those things just become the habits. That becomes a subset of habits. So in the gym, you develop this subset of habits that's literally contributing to your long-term demise. So joints, poor muscle building ability, inflammation, fat accumulation are all going to be a result of people not being diligent with their foundational habits of like, I need to do this correctly and challenge the muscle the most. I hope that kind of answers the question. Absolutely. And one of the most interesting realizations I had was in MI40, and we were doing a little bit of bicep work. You turned around to me and you said, so for those listening, if you can imagine you're standing just straight up, you've got a dumbbell in your hand and it's 90 degrees, you're doing a dumbbell curl with your right arm, right hand, unilateral. And Ben says, so I want you to put your arm, your forearm parallel to the floor at a 90 degree angle as if you're about to do a bicep curl. Cool. Great. You say, now what direction does your arm or the palm of your hand move if you contract your bicep? And I said, upwards, not necessarily. And the point you try to make is I can keep my hand and my joints, my bones exactly where they were, but just put more tension through my bicep. And that was as silly as that sounds. That was the biggest light bulb moment that I had. Because if that means that whatever the, you know, the weight that's in your hands are relevant. If you can put more tension through the muscle, the same weight, like we're winning. And for me, you know, within my business and the people that I coach who are maybe in their forties or their fifties, and they don't need to be lifting crazy heavy weight. Now the question then lies, well, you can get more progress or focus on progression without actually changing the weight, the volume or anything other than just tension through the muscle. Right. Talk to us about that because I know that for me, that was the biggest light bulb moment. And it's something that now when I'm speaking to clients or even when I'm with friends and I'm trying to, you know, have this conversation, it's literally, it's literally, I know it sounds crazy. It's life-changing just to have that realization that you can actually put more force through a muscle without changing anything at all other than internal stimulus. Yeah, there's a lot there. So the big thing is, can you consciously contract this muscle without load first or as little load as necessary or possible to actually contract this thing. If you can't, then as soon as you add load in, in your hand, everything goes out the window, right? So if I say, hey, Chris, let's do this bench press or this row, you've never done it before, and now you feel like you've got it, and then I put weight in your hand, your brain starts thinking about the hand, it completely changes the mechanics. There's a lot there. But you know, objectively, learn the motion first, and then thinking about how can I, like you speak, if we have 40 to 50-year-old clients, 
objectively, how do I make it as hard as possible for this muscle? And, and for the listeners at home, think about that. So if I said I wanted you to do a rep, one single rep for your bicep or whatever muscle, and we wanted to make it as hard as we possibly could, well, what does that feel like? And how would that look if you were doing a rep? And, and everyone goes, well, it would be, you know, I'd squeeze really hard right here. And it'd be really, would it be fast or slow? It'd be really, really slow. Right? Would it be fast on the eccentric or slow? It'd be pro- probably really slow because I'm kind of really trying to slow it down. So it's this concept of like acceleration and deceleration with the muscle. So I'm, I have a load in my hand or, or a nominal resistance and I'm trying to accelerate with the resistance and I'm trying to decelerate with the resistance. But I'm also, I mean, this may be complex, but... If the bicep is contracting, I also have the ability to use the tricep as resistance, this internal tug of war. So I can create massive amounts of internal tension or or internal contraction of the bicep by using the tricep as the antagonist. And same thing with the pecs. You can use the mid-trap as the antagonist. So we can do all these games with ourselves to maximize tension without ever having to add resistance. And if you start playing like that, it makes you be really, really present. And that, I think, is the greatest gift that exists in in training, period, is this synchronicity or the synchronization between body and mind and actually being present in our body, as we spoke about last night when we did our meditative walk in the rain. (laughs) Well, what it does, most people walk and they think, right? We're thinking about things. Well, rather than thinking, how about trying to be and feel rather than think? And that's really kind of the transcendence of exercise, right? At one point, we've all been in the gym and, and forgot about the music playing or forgot about where we were. We were just so enthralled in this exact exercise set, moment, contraction, whatever it is. It's ultimately becoming a meditative experience. So how do we then get into our body and be so in tune and so in connection with every inch of every contraction that it becomes this internalized meditative experience, like this transcendent state of like, oh shit, I didn't realize there was music playing for the last 60 minutes. I was so enveloped and thrilled into my exercise. And that is what everyone misses, right? It's like everyone's striving for happiness and fulfillment and developing their mindset and, and being stronger. And the opportunity lies in every single set or every single rep of every single set, it's sitting right there in front of you. Just like the opportunity lies in a conversation that I can become present and aware and conscious, or I can have my brain spinning and screwing around on Instagram, right? Everything you do in your life or the way you do anything is the way you do everything. And if we can turn that mantra into something we apply in the gym, the gym becomes the most transformative experience in your life because it's a daily opportunity that we're all doing anyways. That can be an opportunity to be disciplined, to be mindful, to be present, to become a better version of myself, to overcome my inadequacies, to overcome my lack of self-confidence. Because I'm doing all these things in sequence that allows me to show myself that, hey, I'm disciplined, I'm confident, I have listening built in. It's the greatest daily battleground for self-development. Because where else in life do we have a challenge? It's easy, right? Everything else is easy. We had an incredibly valuable conversation the first week that we were here um, in the gym, about 20 floors up. We could see the whole city was beautiful. And we're going through some sets and you turn around and you made a very real comment to me in relation to meditation. I said, I really want to go to meditating. And you said, you do it all the time. When you're training, that is your best opportunity to become present. And that's something that, you know, thinking about it, it's, because I'm now so aware of how I am, how I train, you know, what position I'm doing different exercises in, it really makes me think that that is our greatest opportunity to become present. For the vast majority listening to this who want to meditate, the truth is they're already doing it. They just probably need to become a little bit more present in that moment and see that, okay, like you said, 
focus on an internal stimulus first rather than looking outside of your body that was something you know to me that that really another penny drop moment what would you say to people out there who really want to meditate and they're listening to your podcast all the time and i know there's a lot of them are my crew that were on the zoom call last weekend and they want to meditate but the truth is we're already doing it what would you say to those who probably just need to become a little bit more aware and a little bit more conscious about their training first and then focus maybe on meditating or breathing afterwards I think it's just about in every rep you do, just becoming present inside every aspect of your body. So it's starting with most of the time you see me training, maybe not here, but normally my barefoot, right? I've been doing it here a little bit. So it's like, what does the ground feel like? And I'm really rooted into the ground. So I'm creating stability and I'm kind of creating this anchor all the way up through my body and I'm feeling everything. And I'm so just present in that. With that, and then we can maybe become present in our breath. And then we can become present in this centralized stability that exists through our whole body and just like locking that in and feeling what it feels like. And as much as that sounds simple, it's metabolically challenging because it's hard to do. And ultimately, it's valuable that because most people are so disconnected from their body. Most people are so much in their head, especially people who are typically intellect. I've worked with a lot of doctors. The first thing I suggest doctors do is like some type of practice to be able to get out of their head. And that's not a shot against doctors, but doctors are typically very intellectual and spend a lot of time cerebrally, right? Not a lot of time moving. And that's a huge problem. Like ultimately, if you're separated from your body and mind and you're just spending a lot of time in your mind, that's a big disadvantage, I think, right? Physically, because people end up getting a lot of physical ailments because you see them, the posture starts to change and they become the shape of the chair. So anybody just like, just paying attention and becoming present and not being in a rush and feeling. And it's like, you know, we're sitting at you know dinner today and is your brain able to surrender to the moment and be present there? Or is your brain thinking about the next place you need to be? And that's what exists in the gym is most people are like, I got to go check my phone. Who's calling? Well, who tagged my Instagram? Like it's this unconscious fear of missing out of everything else around you. And we talked about a mechanism to overcome that for your clients and for yourself. Uh, you just have to be consciously aware that this is, or make the conscious decision that this is the most important thing for me to be doing in this exact moment. And if it's not, don't go do something do else. Something else. Yeah. yeah. That's so applicable to everything that we yeah. do. Even the people that we spend time with, the relationships, the friendships that we're in, if it's not serving us to our high, on what you directed me in, in the direction of another amazing book, it's not in the direction of our purpose or our authentic self. We probably need to re-question. And on that point, I think because you've had such a massive shift in, I'm not going to say who you are as a person, but maybe how you're perceived to the world over the last few years from you know, professional bodybuilder, top of the mountain, to now, in my eyes, you've just transcended a bigger mountain in terms of the impact that you're having on the world. It's often met when, you know, maybe when I'm in conversations with people who are talking about my training and how I've changed my training because of spending time with you and, you know, for the better, for sure. It's often met with a little bit of, hmm, but would Ben have gotten as big doing this? Or was that something that he's now transcending into because he's already built that muscle? And I'm sure that's a question that you get asked quite a lot. And the truth is, I mean, I know my opinion on that, but what would you say to people out there that say, okay, well, that's all well and good now that you've built the muscle to train this way. If you were to go back in time, truthfully, do you think that starting out this way would have been the first thing that you would do? You can imagine I get asked that a lot. And the answer is without question, I could have done it faster. 
with less time, less injuries, a fraction of the food and a fraction of the drugs. And that's just the honest truth. Here's the simple way to understand it. Every exercise has what's called a resistance profile. It imparts resistance against your body in some particular way. Some parts of the exercise are easy, some parts are hard. So that means by definition, at a certain part of the range, a muscle is being challenged a lot. At a different part of the range, it's being challenged less. So even though the weight seems to stay consistent on the outside, in reality, it's actually variable resistance in every exercise. It changes based on distance and, and a whole bunch of other factors. So if I can learn to get as close to maximally challenging the muscle at every inch of every rep or every millimeter of every rep, wherever people happen to be watching in the world, efficiency by definition is exponentially greater. So thereby I can create less overall systemic stress, lead, need less overall exercises, sets and reps to complete the same objective and spend less time in the gym. So therefore, by default, that builds more muscle. So the only missing piece then becomes effort. You know, ultimately progress is a continuum. Imagine two sliding scales. It's either execution or effort. And both of those lay in everyone's life, exist in everyone's life as an opportunity. Most people have 90% execution, like they're 10% of the way there. And they've got this 90% kind of swaying window where they can still improve. And their effort, maybe most people are say 30, 40, 50% there. So they're a little further down the effort continuum, but they're like nowhere down the execution continuum. And this is everyone. And people, I made that comment one time. I said 99% of people suck. That's including exercise professionals. And people like jumped on my back and I was like, well, it's tr so true. And like, there's days when I suck, right? And I've been doing this for 15 years. Like I'm obviously significantly better than most people, but there's people that are better than me. And, you know, sometimes it's a genetic thing. Sometimes it's a stress thing. Sometimes it's a history thing. But ultimately there has to be a conscious effort to always pursue perfect practice. The answer is without question, I would have done it faster. I still think there's other bodybuilders out there who we could exponentially improve their ability to build quote unquote weak body parts because we know I don't believe in weak body parts. Mm -hmm. Again, I do. I do. I think there's certainly some things that can predispose you to having a weak body part. And the only thing that could predispose you to have a weak body part in my eyes is, is short muscle bellies or odd shaped tendons or injuries, obviously, right? So that's not genetic, but that's just, that's, you know, injuries. So if you have a short muscle belly and a long tendon, it's much harder for you to build that muscle. But other than that, if you have you know, normal length muscle bellies, which most people do, or long muscle bellies, it's exponentially more uh, feasible and easier for you to build muscle. But without question, injuries are eliminated. Like I train, not now, but you know, six months ago when I was training hard, I destroy everybody. And I'm, I no knee pain, no elbow pain, no shoulder pain, because it's just correct. Right. Your body's meant to move this way. And there's a whole, I mean, this is a massive continuum that I teach at the camps. It's like there's this integration between function and isolation. It has to be a balance. And a balance doesn't need to mean 50-50. It means to mean whatever that is, depending on your goal. And so function being what is this joint muscle, et cetera, meant to do functionally. And then isolation is this is how we build this thing. And those things are very opposite. And people need to know that as well. You made one comment to me one of the first times I was in MI40. And the question I asked was, should I get the fives or the sevens? And you said, it doesn't matter. And I was like, completely confused. I was like, what? what do you mean? You said, your bicep doesn't know what weight's in your hand. It just knows the force that you put through it. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I speak a lot to, to my crew when, when we have exercise days or I go through some sessions with some clients and it's so true. And for people to think, okay, well, I've written X in my logbook, but if the amount of force that you're putting through that muscle is 70% of the last set with the same weight, right. 
it's not progressive overload. Right. So at some point, load matters for sure. But in order for it to matter, the, the resistance and the execution needs to be, sorry, not the resistance, the, the execution needs to be standardized. Mm-hmm. The simplest way to understand this is it's all ratios. If I'm doing a flat dumbbell press, and this is an example everybody's heard, I'm doing a flat dumbbell press for my chest and, and my hands, I'm laying on my back, my hands are directly over my elbows. Let's say that's a relative like 10 inches away from my shoulder joint. And I do 10 repetitions with that exact same hand placement, hand stays directly over the elbow. I go do, I do hundred pounds, 10 reps. So then I go, okay, well, that was easy. I want to go up to 110, which is what everybody does. And they go to 110, maybe they go to 120. Let's say they go to 120, they increase the weight by 20%. But when they go back to the execution, instead of having their hand over their elbow, they come in say three inches from their elbow. So now the hand is three inches inside the elbow closer to the shoulder joint. Well, so now we've decreased the distance by 30%, right? So, okay, so I've increased the load by 20, but I decreased the distance by 30. By definition, the equations for torque, I'm doing 10% less work on my pec than I was with 100 pounds. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so like, okay, progressive overload. There's an interesting distinction there when you say distance, and this was something that you speak about in the camp very well, is that, distance for most people listening to this is the range of motion it isn't no it's the distance between whatever with a force and the fulcrum of whatever yeah. movement stationary stationary distance right. i mean it, distance obviously changes throughout the rep as you're moving it's a more complicated concept that we can teach here on a podcast but it's this concept of moment arm so if anybody really wants to geek out on it look up moment arm and it's you know effectively the perpendicular distance to the axis from the line of force to the axis of rotation and that's I'm not going to try to explain that in words, but it's just in 30 seconds can be explained if somebody says to Google, look up moment arm. Or come to the camp. Or come to the camp, yeah. We do talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's an interesting dynamic as well because, you know, fortunately I've, I've been able to train with you in almost three different continents now for soon. Um, and to see one of the questions that people ask is, oh, it must be great to train with Ben by yourself. It is. And we have amazing conversations. But the truth is, I love training with you with someone else and I learn better with someone else. So for those people who are coming to the camps, hopefully this year, you can talk about the dates afterwards. Honestly, to be around a group of even just four or five, six upwards of, you know, a dozen people and to see and watch other people go through different mistakes, but also just trying to execute some different lifts depending on you know whatever the session is is so valuable for me and even to this day when we train and there's somebody else there i learn so much more what would you say to people who are maybe a little bit hesitant or resistant maybe it's a personal trainer or a coach who is maybe hesitant about doing group training because that's something that we get asked quite a lot and oh it's not the same as one-to-one for me the truth is i actually get more value out of maybe a group scenario how the dynamics change and in the camp i think that's something that you highlight really really well yeah i think it's challenging for someone who's more advanced but perfect for someone who's you know in the first few years or in, in relatively low level beginner because you know the more advanced you get if i'm working with a, a mr olympia competitor their stuff needs to be very specific to them and most people like they just need to make sure they're moving with control and they're moving through ranges of motion that their body can handle and through their active range of motion and so i think there's certainly value in doing group training for people who are let's say in the first five years of training or at least low training age meaning you could have been training for 20 years but it's kind of been on and off 
because objectively, like the only thing you're thinking about at that point is challenging muscles. You're not thinking about developing, you know, the clavicular fibers of your pec or the lateral fibers of your vastus lateralis. And if we're looking specifically like, hey, I want to develop these vertical fibers of the lat, that's a very different thing than, you know, just going in there and doing this group thing. So if it's someone who's more advanced, okay, let's, let's make sure it's designed for you. Someone who's a beginner, gosh, like just learning global movement patterns that are, are kind of in the direct correct plane to challenge muscles is so useful. The interesting thing there is, you know, people would see from the outset, maybe myself and they're like, oh, you know, he's a fitness professional. He's been on the cover of magazines. The truth is I don't have a clue. And so many people don't. And I think one of the best gifts that anyone can take away from this podcast is forget everything you think you know, which which is what you say at the start of every right. single camp. And for me, you know, not of an ego by any shape or form, but I was humbled beyond belief. And when I see people who think they know, I'm just literally forget everything you think you know yeah because um, that's what will prevent you from progressing exactly yeah. exactly and, and i think you mentioned about the clavicular fibers of the chest just an interesting point there is when people talk about weak body parts like you say all the time there's no such thing to a degree and we spoke about this at the camp in london and it became very aware to me that i will never be able to grow my upper chest why? Because my stability or my ability to get into that range or that movement to actually contract those fibers is impossible right now with the flexibility of Mostly the model. You'll never be able to do it. Unless I address it, I'll right. never be able to do that. It's an interesting one because people go, I want to build muscle. I'm going to have to lift weight. Work hard. And exactly. And Smash then, your head against the wall. <laughs> and then they realize, well, you know, the prefix to that is exercise execution. The prefix to that is having enough stability or being able to get in that position in the first right. place. So there's there's this natural progression, right? So first, you have to have the prerequisite mobility, mm-hmm. meaning you have to be able to get into these ranges. And we could talk specifically about upper pecs because a huge yeah. segment of the population wants to build upper pecs. And if you can't build upper pecs, typically it's the same reason you can't build your biceps or your back. So first, it's mobility. Like I have to be able to get into these ranges. So if you're tight or lacking mobility, it's usually due to weakness. So your body tightens up. So if you can't get there, you can't train it. If you have the mobility, then we have to generate stability. And so, you know, we kind of have these three levels that I just wrote on my... So if anybody listening wants to learn more about this stuff, I post about it on my Facebook group a lot. So the private Facebook group, which is Muscle Intelligence, Mobility skill and stability are kind of your, this, this like trilogy uh, that's the prerequisite to body composition or muscle building, right? So first I have to have the ability to get into the range. Then I have to have the skill to be able to execute it. And then I have to do it with stability. Now, skill and stability can be interchanged as far as the, the order, but certainly mobility has to come first. And then the reason I say you can interchange skill and stability is because if I have the skill with five kilos and I have the stability with five kilos. As soon as I increase the 10 kilos, I no longer have the skill and stability. So it's this graduated thing where I have to kind of progress up and it's like, you know, always kind of weighing which of these is the thing that's going to break. And then always checking in on stability because ultimately one of them is going to cave and great. Now let's spend more time on training that one. So skill is typically trained in higher rep ranges. So 15 to 20 reps 
or slightly lower tempo. So we just spend a little more time in those positions and stabilities trained with time. So we can either do the reps or we can spend time in those positions of weakness. And that's you know the simple way to approach it, right? So mobility is I'm going to go into these ranges and stay there and activate muscles. And stability is I'm going to go into these ranges, stay there and, and show that I'm stable and under control with ideally with some resistance in the correct direction. And skill is obviously going through a range of motion with some type of resistance over time. I was absolutely thrilled to bits when we started working together. In a very short space of time, I got in the best shape of my life. Did the shoots that I planned to do, got a bunch of covers, absolutely thrilled. I was like, great, now I can focus on progression. I got my book, got my logbook ready to go. And I was like, okay, cool. We're going to start increasing weight. And then I went, okay, I need to focus on exercise execution. Okay, I'm not there yet. I need to focus on stability. Not there yet. Now I need to focus on mobility. And for me, it was literally a case of unlearning everything that I felt I knew. There's so much value, I think, for people out there to just a little bit more humbled in their approach to muscle building where would you suggest a lot of people go to learn those fundamentals yeah, so if they can't maybe come to the camp yeah come to i mean that's the best place obviously learn directly from other coaches but there's a pretty simple i don't even know that it's all that difficult i think it's relatively simple i think the problem is most people are afraid to commit most people like to stick their big toe in and go i'm not really getting results well no shit. like like anything your results will be in direct correlation to the amount of effort you put in. So if we're going to say, hey, Chris, we want to build your upper chest, there's no question in my mind we could double it in six weeks from your peak. There's no question. But how diligent are you going to be? So, you know, we have this guy who just moved into Tampa to spend some time there working with us. And he came in and he's expecting to get crushed. And and what do I tell him? Go inside, walk, breathe, meditate. And why? Well, because this is what you need to do. And if you can't do this, what you will build, no question, like there's no question he's going to build muscle with or without me. But the difference being injuries, proportions, and like, is it going to be weak body parts versus strong body parts? Or is it going to be really, really well balanced? So why do I tell him to breathe, walk, and meditate? Because his pelvis is incredibly unstable. So walking is going to be really, really useful for pelvic stability, lateral pelvic stability. The gait is the, is the second most reflexive thing we do. And what's the most reflexive thing we do? Mm-hmm. Breathing. So why do I tell him to walk? Well, because it, it makes him become hopefully conscious of his diaphragmatic breathing. And why do we do a breathing practice? Because I need him to have an expansive breathing practice to really allow the muscles that envelop the rib cage. So obviously the diaphragm is a big part of that. The intercostals is a big part of that. The serratus is a big part of that. The pecs, the, the lats, all those muscles over time. If you know, think about every muscle in the body, it lengthens and shortens. And if over time you don't use a muscle, it's kind of this use it or lose it principle. So if I don't use it, those muscles just start to tighten up and the atrophy and eventually they're starting to impede our ability to breathe. So our breath cycle becomes very, very inhibited. It becomes very short. We breathe up up here into our chest rather than down to our diaphragm. So what does that mean for building muscle? Well, as those muscles start to constrict to contract, it limits your body's ability to flex and extend your spine, rotate your thoracic spine. So all these muscles become limited. Now I can't, you know, the thoracic spine is the prerequisite for getting my hands above my head, for being able to retract my scapula and keep it back and down. So if I'm in this constantly flexed thoracic position, now I can't keep my shoulders back, right? I can't keep my spine extended. Therefore, I can't build my upper pecs, biceps, and lats. So until I can get my thoracic spine moving, my ribs moving in you know, this kind of natural expansive rhythm, can't build muscle. So and this guy's very young. We're not on a short hmm. timeline. But in order for him to lay the foundations for long-term greatness and success, 
breathe, walk, meditate. And I said, everybody, if you can't do that as the foundation of your fitness, you don't stand a chance. There's such a massive emphasis in the camp and in, you know, in the way you speak and even on last weekend's call about breathing. For a lot of people who are maybe a little bit naive or, you know, they aren't overly aware, like you said, what are some of maybe the smaller, simple exercises that people can do? I know when we spoke about me meditating, you said, just sit and breathe and be conscious and be aware and be mindful of your breathing. And truthfully, I'm not just saying this, it's made a massive difference, even in the time that I've been here. What other tips and tricks can people use in terms of, you know, being aware of their breathing or even just how they think about breathing? I think what you just said there is the key is think about breathing and and most people don't and that's okay. But so I actually tell this to my clients a lot. So most people have a physiological response to stress, right? So if you get stressed, if I were to subject you to a stressful situation that you've experienced somehow in your past, you have a physiological and a psychological response to that. So psychological response is your brain starts thinking about something. Physiological response is your body starts doing something, right? So whatever that stress is for you, you have a pattern inside your body. So like a posture or a breathing pattern that automatically becomes triggered every time you go back into the situation. So maybe it's your parents, maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's your job, maybe it's whatever. So it becomes this physiological pattern. The physiological pattern then becomes the psychological pattern, right? So it's this this chicken or the egg scenario. So if I walk into a stressful situation, my breathing goes up into my chest. All of a sudden, my body switches into a sympathetic nervous state and my brain starts going into like that, that fight or flight reactive mode just based on this physiological response. What I suggest all my clients do is every time you are able to become aware of a stressful scenario, you have a trigger and your trigger is, I know I'm stressed. What's my solution? What's my coping mechanism? Take the longest exhalation you could possibly take and try to get 10, 20, 30 seconds. One breath, exhale. That's the foundation of learning to get out of your head, get out of your chest, into your diaphragm. So that'll take you out of your head and into your body and you can immediately come out of stress. That's the greatest coping strategy that exists in the world. Simple mechanism that people should be doing preemptively is just paying attention to the duration of your exhalation being slightly longer than the duration of your inhalation. So the the inhalation is the inhalation or the breath of the sympathetic nervous system. So if I go, I inhale, I get, it's like the breath of panic, right? It's my body's getting ready to fight or, fl- or flee. If I go, <sighs> exhale very slowly, it's the breath of relaxation. And that's the same on every inhalation and exhalation. So if I can train my body to become more uh, centered around longer and extended exhalations, all of a sudden my brain works a little bit better. And all of a sudden my muscle tone comes down a little bit. My stress is down. My anxiety goes away. And that becomes my default day to day. Whereas if I'm constantly on spending more time on the inhale, I'm enforcing my exhale. I have no sympathetic tone in my vagal nerve, uh, sorry, no parasympathetic tone and a whole bunch of sympathetic tone in, in, you know, in my nervous system. So my body's always in this state of high muscle tone, fight or flight, high blood pressure, anxiety in my brain. It's so simple to shift it. And do we all get guilty of it? Like we get so caught up in like having to do things and you know, we've been guilty of this, right? It's like, how can you just learn to relax? And sometimes stress is the greatest thing to ever happen to you because it makes it necessary for you to become aware of this. So rather than being anxious or angry about your stress, say thank you for creating this awareness that I haven't been paying conscious attention to my breathing, my walking, my meditating. 
which, as I say, is the foundation of your greatest life. And the irony is that if you're aware that you're stressed, good, right? That's it. Like if you're aware that you're stressed, good, because like you said, then you can actually, well, you have the ability, whether you do or not, to address it is a different question. It's not a character trait. True. It's a state. You don't have anxiety. You get anxiety and you can fix it in seconds, just like anything else. You can change it. And I think that's a very empowering statement for people to understand. You're not a victim to your psychology. You can change it. You just haven't learned the steps yet. And this is what we're walking you through. And I'm not sure how this training conversation turned into the psychological stuff, well, but it, it, it often does. It's right? valuable. Yeah. It's valuable. And I think when you look at things like in terms of fight or flight, changing your breathing so that you, let's just say you're doing a max lift or you're doing your last all out set, being able to have that switch, that superpower where you can literally change your breathing and change your whole physiology based on your breath. That's a superpower and that's relevant to training for sure. Yeah. So I've actually been experimenting with that. Well, maybe not so much since we've been here because the training has been minimal, but previous to this, a lot of breath holds in the middle of my workout. And that sounds odd, but you know, if I do a set of leg press or hack squat or leg extension or something or any exercise, as soon as I put the weight down, rather than just mindlessly breathing, I actually intentionally don't inhale. I exhale all my air and I hold, I hold on the exhalation and I'm trying to hold as long as I can. And I'm trying to accumulate a strong air hunger. And when that air hunger is so strong that I have to take a breath in, I take a deep breath into my nose. So we know if we're doing a strong breath hold, your body starts producing nitric oxide in your nasal cavity. So by inhaling through your nose, you're getting all this nitric oxide into your blood. And the breath hold itself is accumulating carbon dioxide. That's the trigger to breathe. So as I'm holding my breath, there's more and more and more carbon dioxide accumulating and your brain goes, oh, I need to breathe. So that's the trigger. That beauty of that is that the accumulation of that carbon dioxide is actually a very important trigger inside your body to off gas oxygen from the hemoglobin into the tissues, right? So which is not that's where we need oxygen. We don't need oxygen in the blood, we need the tissues. So if we can accumulate more CO2 during our workout, it actually is a huge benefit to performance. So I do that as soon as I'm done a set, not every set, but you know, call it you know one to two sets every exercise. And I'll do that intentionally holding my breath after the set, take that one breath in and go again. And I'll get an extra two, three, four reps, even though I had failed on that previous, you know, when I finished that set. So I didn't, I don't hold my breath for longer than 10 to 15 seconds after a set. And I'm going again in 10 to 15 seconds, I'm getting an extra 30 to 40% output. That's huge. Just from a breath hold, just from some nitric oxide. It's massive. So that, I mean, that's, again, if you want to talk about ability to improve work capacity, it's huge. And breath holds are also sympathetic. So it's actually going to be contributing to that sympathetic arousal, which you need to get more output. What blows my mind is, you know, from becoming a, a great friend of yours and speaking now to people who you've trained with in the past, I'm very aware that you are one of, if not the hardest training and were hardest training bodybuilders that there was, at least in, you know, in the last decade. What scares me is how things would have maybe panned out, not in terms of trophies or titles or anything like that, but if the knowledge that you know now, you would apply 10 years ago, which is why, for example, when we talk about people who are in your realm or in your circle now, make full use of the knowledge that you're sharing 
Because if you can have both of those things, it's a superpower. I don't even want to know how big your legs would be now, even you know when you were competing, if you had applied these principles. But I think it would have been a balanced thing, right? You would psychologically well, more balanced <laughs> I think so. and, and, and physiologically more balanced. So here's the thing with waist development. I talked about this in the last podcast. Breathing into your diaphragm, it creates an internal pressure in your trunk and spine. So what that's doing is it's supporting the musculature. So if I'm breathing into my chest and the diaphragm is not expanding down into the lower pelvis where it's supposed to down to the lower belly, well, I don't have the intra-abdominal pressure building up. So if I put six, 700 pounds on my back as a squat and I don't have that diaphragm expanding down into my lower abdomen, well, I don't have that diaphragmatic pressure on the inside to support the trunk. So what's necessary on my spine then? Those muscles have to work exponentially harder. So I think the waist is going to grow more, right? If you're not consciously being able to breathe down into your pelvic floor, Floor, I think it's actually taking away from your ability to keep a nice small waist. And that's the first thing I teach everybody. If you want to decrease the size of your waist, and that's what I did in my final year, just had a really, really diligent breathing practice like every day. I did probably multiple times a day. Like once a day is probably not true. It was probably two to three to four times a day where I would do some type of breath practice, some type of vacuums. I was pretty neurotic about it. I mean, I probably could have been, you know, if I'm being honest, I was probably a 9.5 out of 10. Like I probably could have pushed a little bit harder if I was a little bit crazy, but I did also have my kids. So I didn't want to be like locked in the bathroom doing <laughs> breathing exercises while my little babies were knocking on the door, you know? So you know, I was very committed, but I could have gone further. And that's an interesting thing to think about. It's like if someone's actually willing to do everything, what's possible. It's just crazy. That's for me, you know, having experienced that firsthand, even in the two weeks leading up to, you know, my shoots, working with you a lot closer on my breathing made a massive difference to you know, some of the photos that I now use. I'm like, yeah, it was probably 10% of that was down to the breathing that we did in the last few weeks. It's so significant. Like I can't state how significant it is in, in waste control, in size of your waist, like without question. Anyone who thinks they have a thick waist, you just don't have breath control. I know, right? Yeah. There's not like I'm guessing. Like if I look at you and you have a thick waist, I already know you have dysfunctional breathing. One of um, the things I suppose that's become overly apparent when we talk about the depths that you went to in your mind when you were training is probably that if there's someone out there that wants to put on a huge amount of muscle or they want to compete at a very high level, the biggest gift you could probably give them is historical pain or a difficult situation or hurt or being in a shitty place and using that going forward. Do you think it's possible for someone who's had an incredible upbringing and never been through stress or pain to go where you went in your head and in your training? Maybe. The fact that it's met with maybe yeah. really kind well, of signifies my point. Yeah, yeah, I get what but you're it saying. Possibly, like we said, it, it maybe it is possible, but it's very obvious to me that that was and probably is in terms of your physique, your biggest gift for sure was to be able to tap into that and go, this is going to be the reason why, whatever it may be. And I think there are people out there that can resonate with that. But instead of playing the victim card, they can use that to their greatest strength and make it their greatest gift in terms of training. Yeah, I think very similar to, let's say, again, this is going off on a bit of a tangent, but let's say we have a client that walks in the room and they're 50 years old and they say, Chris, you know, Ben, I want to lose 50 pounds of fat. So we could say, okay, friend, we can give you a soldier's program of exactly what to do to lose 50 pounds of fat. And there's no question you're going to do it. And if you just follow everything I say, you'll get there. Or we could say, all right, friend, I'm not giving you a plan. What I'm going to do is I'm going to change your, your identity. 
your beliefs and your habits. And that in and of itself will be enough to help you lose this 50 pounds. So I think that conversation needs to be kind of paralleled within the necessity of or the ability of someone to reach the heights that they're physically and mentally capable of. Meaning, if I had someone that came to me, no matter what their psychological background, if they just followed the plan to the T, there's no question we could do just obscene things. Whereas that may not be the best path, right? Like, will they get there? Yes, but they're not going to achieve what they actually are setting out to achieve. So the much more useful as far as life goes, but may not get them to the same result. And I said this to our friend who we were just talking about. I said, listen, man, my goal for you is not to teach you the X's and O's and give you the workout and give you the diet. I can do that. But what's way more important to me for you is that we develop these identities, beliefs, and habits that allow you to find your path to your greatest self, to your dharma. And if that means along the path, you find your way to becoming Mr. Olympia, great. But I think this is more important for you. Again, short term, he can decide in a long term, like, no, man, F you, I want to go back and do this. But there's no question that if we just followed the X's and O's, he could be great. If I said, hey, you got to breathe this many times, you got to do this many sets, you have to do this much meditation, this much walking. I mean, he would just be unbelievable, but he wouldn't have the pain along the way, the challenges along the way that everyone needs to experience in order to appreciate the process. So there's an example, right? I've trained someone recently who's a professional bodybuilder, and it was literally like taking him in and protecting him almost, like not allowing him to experience the setbacks, the injuries, the pains, the problems. And at the end of that process, all of a sudden he wasn't all that happy. He wasn't grateful because he just got given a gift rather than having to fight for the gift, right? There's certainly some psychological dynamics to be considered there. Do you know sure. what I'm saying? I mean, just for context, we had a conversation, you know, around a similar journey. And the question that you posed was, does he or whoever it may be, want to actually achieve this because the truth is if i told him everything that i know not that it's not a, a great place but maybe like you said his dharma or his purpose is not actually to be there and the truth is that you know if you were to maybe give him everything that he needs he probably wouldn't, he wouldn't make it there it. and he wouldn't yeah. want it right that's a very interesting dynamic but also then the question lies, well, where is the challenge for him or where's the growth? Or so many people listening to this podcast right now, maybe the growth is going through that journey and realizing that it's not your path. Maybe you sometimes need to go down the wrong path to realize that it's not the right one. Sure. Uh, well, so regardless, so speaking of, I mean, continuing on this conversation on this person is the challenge that he's experiencing right now is all of these things that he doesn't want to do that we know are his weakest links. And, and psychologically, that's hugely challenging for him. Like an example being, if I say, you know, you want to be a professional bodybuilder, hypothetically, and I say, Chris, you can only train three times a week. Psychologically, that's really, really hard. And if, if you can't go to the gym today, right? I want to eat more. You can't eat more. So we're developing this discipline and this like urge to do it and actually seeing, well, do you actually want to do it or do you just think you want to do it? That's really powerful. So there's values and discipline to be developed without having to experience pain, right? So we can still subject ourselves to massive amounts of discipline without the pain of failure, right? So either, you know, this suffer the pain of discipline or the pain of regret. So we're just going to subject them to some discipline and see like, okay, if you want to do it, then go. But 
if you don't want it bad enough, you'll know, right? Right. right? You'll know. We spoke openly the other night and, you know, admittedly a bit vulnerable about challenges that I faced. And one of the things that, you know, that really reached out, I suppose, and grabbed me was your thought process around being a victim and settling for being a victim. And I think, yes, it can be related to training. It can be related to, you know, be it academia, whatever it may be in your life. What would you say to people out there who are still feeling or playing the victim card, whether it's, you know, they're not building enough muscle, they're not losing the body fat that they want, or they don't have the job or the girlfriend that they need or whatever it may be. What advice would you give to people in relation to getting out of that victim mentality? I think the first issue is most people don't know they're a victim, right? right? Like the definition of a victim is not acknowledging that I'm a victim. And so that's extremely challenging for people is, you know, the first step for me, and I actually talked about this recently on a podcast, was just starting to acknowledge my words, right? Like, what are the words I choose? Are they strong, empowering ownership words? Like, am I responsible for my outcomes or is someone else responsible for my outcomes? Right. That's a big, big thing. So thinking that through is super important as far as acknowledging where victim words and victim attitudes exist in your life. It really just takes paying attention. Am I empowered by my situation or am I giving my power away to somebody else? A lot of us tend to, you know, in positive and negative, I'm actually guilty of this sometimes as well where I'll actually consciously give power away to my team or I'll meaning I won't take credit for things that are mine. And that's literally, you know, another way of becoming a victim, right? I'm, I'm giving power away. So there's a lot of levels of acknowledging victimhood in your life. I think it just starts with paying attention to the words you choose and whether or not you feel like you're actually responsible for absolutely everything. And, uh, you know, that's literally everything, right? Like from the way you look, the way you speak, your financial situation, the relationship you're in, it's 100% your fault. It's okay that it sometimes can be a conscious choice to be in a situation that you're happy with, but make that conscious choice and go, yeah, I did this and now I'm going to fix it. And, you know, my blessing and my curse of my personality is this lack of empathy. I think it's a, I think it's a blessing. Well, let's say it's a curse first because... A lot of people take that as me not caring, where the opposite is, I care more than anybody. I'm just not going to sit around and let you feel sorry for yourself, right? So as a coach, you'll get this. Like, I'm the first guy to call you on your BS and say, good, get off your ass and let's fix it. And so I acknowledge that I don't always feel empathy for people. I don't always express empathy, but I mean, I just wouldn't want someone to give me empathy. Like if there was something wrong with me and I was, or something was unfulfilling in my life and it was not making me live my highest and best. And someone came along and went, aww, it's going to be okay. I would be very angry. Like, fuck off. Don't be (laughs) condescending. Like if you have some assistance and you can like fucking pick me up and let's do this together. Great. Otherwise, I don't want to hear you go, aww. Like, um, how does that help? Don't get it. I did a lot of work on transactional analysis. Uh, we spoke about this before and looking at the, you know, the psychological or, you know, emotional game or triangle that gets played when, you know, someone pulls you onto a victim triangle as a rescuer. I think more than anyone I've met, you just don't facilitate that. And from a client of yours, <laughs> yeah, it's so important as a client 
to have a coach who doesn't do that, who doesn't allow you to play the victim, who's not enabling. And it's something that I've really tried because being very honest, I feel like wrongly, I would facilitate the victim mentality because I want, I feel like that's, you know, me being a rescuer and I want to help people. And I've realized that it's detrimental to my client's achievement or that, you know, their goal. And I think sometimes it's met with a little bit of, oh, when I say you're playing the victim here, I don't want to facilitate you doing so. I think a lot of people listening to this for sure. And, you know, them being your tribe won't fall into that demographic of playing. Everybody does, but, man. Everybody does some things in life, right? right. It's, it's not like a character trait, like I am or I'm not. It's cert- certainly situational. So one thing I do for people who are having hard situations is I, I call it holding space. I say, if you're having an emotional moment, I'm just going to let you know. Like, I'm going to let you go through this and I'm going to stand here and wait. And when you're done, you let me know. And I'm here to support you in any way you need when you're done. Because I don't want you to repress it. Right. right. We talk about this, like repressing is this idea of like sweeping the dragon under the rug. We don't want to repress it. We don't want to bury it and then like turn on the music and pick up our phone and call somebody and like, no, no, no. let it express, let the emotions express, whatever that happens to be. And I'm not going to perpetuate it. I'm just going to sit here and say, when you're done, let's take action. As soon as you're done, let's break the habit and let's take action. Right. That's just some skill that I've acquired. Hasn't always been that way. Hasn't always been that way. But I just realized, man, like what I would want is rapid, immediate, drastic action, like toward fixing it. Like, what can we do right now to make it better? Not, let's sit and dwell about it for the next three days. Okay. Like clinical depression aside, right? Because that's certainly a real thing that I'm not an expert at. If you're just being a victim in something like, good, what do I do to fix it? And sometimes you don't have the ability in that moment to fix it yourself. You're in the sea of emotions and you're in the sympathetic overdrive and you're like, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. So you need that person who's strong staying there beside you to say, this is what we're going to do and we'll do it together. And For sure. Yeah. yeah. Ben, I can't build muscle. Then come to the camp. Right. Do it. Right. And the truth is, I know, you know, we had trained and been working together for a number of months before I came to the first camp. Blew my mind. Honestly, it blew my mind. And, you know, I was like, oh, yeah, I'll come along. Thank you for the invite. You know, we'll go. It'll be great. But I've trained with you one-to-one. So, you know, it'll just be good to spend time with you and spend some time with Jordan. Blew my mind. Absolutely blew my mind. I'd highly recommend, shameless plug, that if, and I'm not even going to say that if it's in a town near you, you should make a point of going there. Right. For those listening, what are the finalized dates so far? So one of the cool ones, that this is the first time we're doing this, we're going to do a destination camp in Bali. So nice. I don't think there's a lot, there may be a lot of bodybuilders in Bali, I don't know. But I think if anyone wants a cool vacation in February, that sounds like a really awesome place to be. So myself and Mila Sartrev will be there for a week. So one thing that's really interesting that people have been asking me about since I posted this is the camps are going to be four days long. So one day, if you just want to attend one day to see if it's free, you can do that. Obviously, less of an investment, or you can do all four days. So this, the first day is just seminar, just talking about all this stuff. And, and days two, three, and four will be two workouts a day. Milos Sarchev and myself leading those workouts. Now, if you don't know who Milos Sarchev is, look him up. He, in my opinion, is one of the top five greatest physiques that's ever walked the face of the earth. And uh, still at 50 years old, looks just like a beast. He's absolutely amazing. And one of the guys I looked up to most for sure. I mean, I was 15 years old when I first saw him. I was like, this guy just looks perfect. He has the perfect physique. 
and ultimately became one of my great friends and my role models. And now I'm super excited to be able to go on tour with them. But so one thing people have been asking is like, hey, are you guys going to do a business mentorship day? I was like, well, that's interesting because, you know, probably 75% of the demographic is trainers. 25% is certainly not trainers. So someone's not a trainer. You don't have to be a trainer to come to this class. You just have to be someone who's really interested in optimizing your physique and understanding how the body works and all the little intricacies and tricks and tips that goes into it. So if anyone's interested in doing like a one-day business event, mastermind teaching how to grow an online business, we can do that as well. We're doing Dubai, which is the last weekend in January. You can find that at DubaiMuscleCamp.com. We're doing Sydney, Australia, first weekend in February. Uh, You can find that at just MuscleCamp.com. We're doing Melbourne and Doherty's Gym, and we're doing that in the second weekend, 13th through the 16th in February. And then the next weekend, we go straight to Bali, and that will be the 20th through the 24th, I believe, 20th through 23rd in Bali. So those are all available on MuscleCamps.com. So content-wise, Milos is going to be teaching most of the muscle building stuff. And I'm going to be teaching all the other stuff that goes into muscle building. So the mindset, the stress management, the nutrition, sleep optimization and things like that. Amazing. Amazing. And there's one in Tampa in March? There's two in Tampa actually. So again, I wasn't going to do any in the US because I travel a lot. But we've had so many people ask that we decided to launch two in Tampa, which will be the 26th through the 28th of March. And the 26th through the 28th, I believe, of May, those ones are on a different site. Those are on mi40gym.com slash camps, just because those are the only ones we hold in Tampa. So keeping those kind of as a separate thing. And that's that. We will be doing coaches certifications. So I am doing that officially in Canada with Good Life Gyms. That's private for Good Life, but we are going to be launching that class as well. So That'll be fun as we launch probably toward the end of the year. I'm kind of making it exclusive to Good Life for the first bit of the year. And then we'll release it later in the year to everyone else. I'm going to be like a groupie for the year. Just traveling around. Let's do it. (laughs) Let's do it. Might as well make a business together. Absolutely. Well, who knows? Who knows? Colombia? June? Something like that? (laughs) That might not be a bad idea. Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, that's a wrap. And this has been another Q&A episode of the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, we'd appreciate if you left us a review on iTunes, share it with at least one person you know and love. We are trying to share the message of living your greatest life in a body you love. And for us, that means optimizing everything that goes into your body, everything that comes out of your mind. And uh, we really know that we can make a massive impact in the world by spreading this message. So we're super grateful for you being here. For myself and Dr. Chris Spearman, this has been the Muscle Intelligence Q&A. Have an amazing day. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Pikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.